When we share someone's story here on The Diaries, the episode might end, but their story doesn't. So many of the people we've talked to, they've gone on to do incredible things. They have epic adventures and make significant impacts in our community. Over on Diaries Plus, we're catching up with some of our former guests to see what they've been up to. I recently sat down with Connor Ryan, a Lakota professional skier from our Sacred Slopes episode, who's been knocking out groundbreaking projects ever since the episode aired. It's really incredible. We had a great discussion about the impacts he's made, what keeps his fire burning, and taking ski lessons as a pro skier. Here's a snippet of the conversation. All the source of joy that I use to fill my cup to be out in the world doing positive things comes from my relationship to the outdoors. And so I've really focused on like, wow, like there's so much power if I can give one person the relationship to the outdoors that that I have through skiing. And maybe that will have as profound of an effect on them as it's had on me. To listen to the full episode, use the link in the show notes to subscribe to Diaries Plus today. Yeah, you get more shows, but you also have a peace of mind of powering what's out there right now, keeping us moving forward, keeping this community together. So thank you for everyone who supported and everyone who's going to support. We appreciate it. I stood on a black sand beach at sunset. Brilliant turquoise waves lapped at my toes. I felt utterly relaxed. A gentle breeze tussled my hair. Somewhere in the vast ocean in front of me, a fish jumped. I turned to take in the scene behind me, straight out of Jurassic Park. The emerald-carpeted walls of Waimanu Valley towered above me. Silver waterfalls fell 2,000 feet to the valley floor. Not all beach vacations live up to the hype, I thought, but this one certainly does. Just as I unscrewed the lid of my Nalgene to toast the aloha life, the first drops of rain began to fall. I'd been looking forward to my family's trip to Hawaii for nearly a year. My parents wanted to run a relay race on the Big Island, and my husband, Bix, and I eagerly signed on. I envisioned sitting on the beach with a cocktail, preferably served in a hollowed-out coconut. Not everything has to be an epic, I reminded him one evening as I shopped online for a new swimsuit. He emerged from our gear closet, snorkel firmly attached to his face, and asked if I'd seen his fins. This is a fundamental difference in our marriage. Bix firmly believes that nothing is worth doing if you're not exhausted or grateful to be alive afterward, while sometimes I want to sit in a lounge chair and read a novel. For the sake of compromise, I agreed to add an overnight backpacking trip to our itinerary. I should have known, when Bix presented me with a trip billed as one of the Big Island's wildest and most remote, that Waimani Valley wouldn't be the relaxing beach romp I'd had in mind. Still, the aerial photos were enticing. I agreed, and reserved a permit for the Muliwai Trail. The Hawaii Department of Natural Resources permitting website urges Waimanu visitors to carefully review the conditions and hazards before bothering to make a reservation. Potential hazards include, but are not limited to, slippery footing and falling rocks during rain, flash floods, potentially fatal stream crossings, high winds, which may cause branches to fall on the trail or in campsites, and the presence of leptospirosis and hepatitis in untreated water. This region of Hawaii Island receives over 100 inches of rain annually, the website cautions. This sounded like a lot of rain, 
but when I mentioned the number to Bix, he shrugged it off, reminding me that we're both literally backpacking instructors. We've both spent years working as guides and educators, spending weeks at a time in remote wilderness. Our cumulative time in the backcountry definitely crosses the 10,000-hour expert threshold. It's not like we'd never crossed a stream before. The hike to Waimanu Valley is nine miles long, but this is one of those instances where describing a hike in terms of its mileage doesn't really do it justice. Backpackers park at the Waipio Valley Lookout, 900 vertical feet above Waipio Beach. From there, a three-quarter mile access road reaches a grade of 25% as it descends to the beach. We waved to the friendly ranger stationed at the lookout, showed him our permit, and made our way down to the Black Sand Beach, where we crossed a calf-deep stream and avoided a series of altars, monuments to 50 generations of the local taro farmers' ancestors, according to our guidebook. The official Muliwai trailhead, such as it is, begins at the far end of Waipio Beach. It's tricky to spot, hidden in a grove of waxy-leaved trees and surrounded by very convincing no-trespassing signs. But finding the trail was no problem, compared to the challenge it immediately presented. The Muliwai Trail ascends nearly a thousand vertical feet in three switchbacks, carving a crude Z-shape into the hillside opposite the lookout. From there, the trail loosely follows along a single contour line and zigzags into 13 gulches along the way. As soon as we crested the last switchback, we stopped to refill our Nalgenes at a gentle waterfall, which cascaded from 30 feet above us into a clear pool at our feet. On either side of the remaining gulches, a crude sign warned that hikers should turn back in case of rain, which would certainly cause flash flooding and falling rock, illustrated by a distressed-looking stick figure. I made a nervous joke about needing a climbing helmet, at which point Bix reminded me that I'd scaled active volcanoes and crossed glaciers. Fair enough. I let the sweet-smelling trail, littered with passion fruit and lychee, lull me into my usual hiking rhythm. Here and there, the fruit had been smashed by feral pigs, which we could hear foraging in the bushes below. And then there it was, a verdant tropical paradise, complete with every imaginable shade of green. Waimanu Valley lived up to the hype. We descended some 900 feet from our contour to the valley below, then crossed the hip-high Waimanu River to reach our campsite. I promptly dropped my pack and rummaged for my novel. By the time I found a postcard-perfect reading spot on the beach, it had begun to sprinkle. Vix looked at the graying skies and suggested we set up the tent. I grudgingly agreed, and by the time we'd gotten the fly-on, the deluge had begun in earnest. Tent time is the low light of any backcountry trip. Even with someone you really like, a cramped nylon cube gets uncomfortable after a while. Tensions start to run high. We spent an hour or so playing gin rummy and waiting for the rain to let up. When it didn't, we weighed our options. Since we couldn't fly with fuel, we'd left the stove at home and opted to cook over a campfire, which didn't look like a problem since there was no rain in the forecast for the nearest town. Now we had a raw onion, a potato, and a local sausage, and no way to cook them. This'll make a good story, I said, opening a package of Pop-Tarts for dinner. A couple of mountain guides stuck in the rainforest with no stove. Six games of gin rummy later, the game had worn thin. In part, perhaps, because I'm a very sore loser. Bix peeked outside as if the constant thrum of rain on the fly didn't tell us everything we needed to know about the weather. By 8 o'clock, hours after darkness had fallen on the equatorial Big Island, 
The rain showed no sign of letting up. I took a swig from my almost empty Nalgene. We'd planned to refill and purify from waterfalls, a no-go in the downpour, and fell asleep to the sound of waves crashing on the beach. The rain let up sometime before dawn. Bix woke up before me. He said he hadn't gotten much sleep, plagued by guilt for having cheated me at cards, I was sure, and crept out of the tent to take a peek at the river. How's it look? I asked, snooping around in hopes of finding some dry wood to make a fire. When he didn't answer, I looked up, assuming he hadn't heard. His face looked white. We should get a move on, he said. Moments later, I stood on the banks of the swollen Waimanu, which had come up something like three feet from yesterday. The lazy river had picked up speed, too, but that wasn't the worst of it. Downstream, the river spilled into the ocean, dirtying the waves with sediment and mud. I could see exactly how far into the sea I'd end up if I lost my grip mid-crossing. We unbuckled our pack straps, linked arms, and started across. A third of the way in, the river bottom fell away, and the water reached my chin. To quell the panic rising in my throat, I tightened my grip on Bix's arm and stabbed my trekking pole into the mud, hoping against hope I wouldn't be swept into the Pacific. By the time we reached the far shore, I was swimming as hard as I could. I collapsed in the damp sand on the other side of the river, shaking uncontrollably despite the humid jungle air. I hoped that was the worst of it, but if my time in the wilderness has taught me anything, it's that luck favors the prepared. I didn't fall into that category in terms of food, water, or a backpacking stove, but I steeled myself for a tough nine miles. Each of the 13 gulches was muddier and more forceful than the last. What had been puddles the day before now reached my knees, thighs, hips. Halfway back, an enormous tree had fallen across the trail. Newly fallen rocks were scattered across the Muliwai like passion fruit. The last gully before the descent to YPO Beach featured the 30-foot waterfall we'd stopped to admire the day before. It had been transformed overnight into a fire hose, blasting so much muddy water so quickly we could feel it from 10 feet away. The trail crossed the base of the falls. Below that was a slick, mossy, 70-foot drop. I swallowed hard. This was it. And then I figured we were home free. My relief at braving the waterfall was short-lived. As we reached the top of yesterday's steep switchbacks, the view of YPO Beach opened up. A thousand feet below, I could see the little stream we'd crossed before. But it wasn't a stream anymore. As we'd later find out, the YPO River drains not only the entire valley, but several others around it. When it rains, those majestic waterfalls empty their contents into the YPO. Yesterday's clear tide pool had become a series of opaque standing waves, a class three rapid I'd be nervous to run on a boat. We reached the edge of the river, which crumbled away beneath our feet. Without discussion, we dropped our packs and began searching for a way across. Vic started to walk into the current. Almost immediately, he lost his balance and thrashed his way to shore. The Waimanu had been bad enough. There was no way we could make it to the other side by linking arms and hoping for the best. Vix hiked upstream while I scoped out the point where the river met the sea. We reconvened our packs and shook our heads in unison. Glaciers and bears and lightning storms were nothing compared to this. For the first time in my career, I began to think I might need a rescue. We sat on our packs. Flash floods passed quickly in the desert, I reasoned. Maybe the water would recede and we could cross. We started talking about finding a place to hunker down for the night. 
I eyed the woods, uneasy about the idea of encroaching on the altars we'd seen the day before, and hoped it wouldn't come to that. An hour and a half later, the river showed no sign of slowing. I pulled out my book, hoping to use a few pages for kindling, but it, like everything else in my pack, including what remained of our Pop-Tarts, was waterlogged. Ironically, the inside of my Nalgene was the only dry space in my backpack. The panic I'd felt that morning began to spread again. Here I was, a raft guide and backpacking instructor, a professional wilderness instructor, with no food or water, a sopping wet tent and wetter sleeping bag, no way to banish the chills or signal that I needed help. The what-ifs started in. What if we spent another night out and the river didn't subside? What if it rained again? And then, over the raging torrent, we heard a low whine. A jeep. We waved our arms and shouted, catching the surfer's attention from the other side of the beach. A muscular, Disney prince of a man approached the river and dove in. I was sure I was about to watch him drown, but he appeared on the other side, shook the water from his long blonde hair, and announced that, occasionally, the river came up like this. The surf was excellent today, he said. I picked my jaw up off the beach and introduced myself. We'd been out at Waimanu, I said, and I only dog paddle. I can't believe you just swam across that, I told him. We're not from around here, Bix explained. Moments later, his buddy appeared in a cheap plastic canoe, borrowed from a taro farmer upstream. We shouldered our packs and sheepishly loaded up. Our ferry captain, Banyan, he said, like the tree, laughed as I imitated my swimming technique and deposited us safely on the other side, with the advice that I learned to swim. The ranger was still at his post when we arrived, out of breath and a little more humble than we'd been the day before, at the YPO lookout. He'd been worried about us with all the rain. Me too, I told him, glad he hadn't had to rescue us. With that, we settled in to play gin rummy until our ride arrived. I won a game, and as my prize, Bix agreed that our next trip didn't have to be an epic. I'm Emma Walker, and this is my short. Diaries is made possible by the good people at Patagonia. For almost 40 years, they have supported grassroots activists working to find solutions to the environmental crisis. But in this time of unprecedented threats, it's often hard to know the best way to get involved. That's why Patagonia is proud to announce ActionWorks, a new initiative that connects individuals with Patagonia grantees to take action on the most pressing issues facing the world today. Learn more at patagonia.com slash action works. Additional support comes from Kuat Rats. Mountain biking season is coming. This spring, get your bike to the trailhead in style with a sleek, easy-to-use rack from Kuat. Check out their lineup and their brand new website at kuatracks.com. And support comes from Vossen Brewing, who is excited to announce that they've partnered with the Alliance for Chesapeake Bay, a nonprofit committed to restore and protect the Chesapeake Bay watershed. Not only has Vossen partnered with the Alliance for their upcoming Reedy Creek Lager beer release, they will co-host a give-back night to support their efforts and partner with them on cleanup projects throughout 2018. Learn more at VossenBrewing.com. You, our listeners, you truly keep the diaries thriving. To pledge your support, visit our website, DirtbagDiaries.com, and click the button in the upper right-hand corner. Thank you so much to everyone who has contributed already. A huge thank you to Emma for sharing her story. You can find links to more of Emma's writing and to her previous two shorts on our website. 
Music today from Little Glass Men, the Psy 23, and Publish the Quest. The tracks are courtesy of Free Music Archive. Jacob Bain and Nick Koto composed our theme song. You can find links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Becca Call and me, Jen Alchel. It was scored and edited by Cordelia Zars. You've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. You are the strength of the need to the need to defend. 